Part One of Isle of the Undead. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Louise J. Bell. Isle of the Undead by Lloyd Arthur Eschbach. Part One a horror from the past a drab gray sheet of cloud slipped stealthily from the moon's round face like a shroud slipping from the face of one long dead a coldly phosphorescent face from which the eyes had been plucked yellow radiance fell toward a calm oily sea seeking a narrow bank of fog lying low on the water penetrating its somber mass like frozen yellow fingers. Vilma Bradley shuddered and shrank against Clifford Darrell's brawny form. It's, it's ghastly, Cliff, she said. Ghastly? Darrell leaned against the rail, laughing softly. One cocktail too many, that's the answer. It's given you the jitters. Listen. Faintly from the salon came strains of dance music and the rhythmic shuffle of feet. A nifty yacht, a South Sea moon, a radio dance orchestra, dancers, and little Clifford. And you call it ghastly. Almost savagely, his arms tightened about her, and the bantering note left his voice. I'm crazy about you, Velma. She tried to laugh, but it was an unconvincing sound. It's the moon, Cliff, I guess. I never saw it like that before. Something's going to happen. Something dreadful. I just know it. Oh, be sensible, Velma. There was a hint of impatience in Cliff's deep voice. A gorgeous girl in his arms, dark-haired, dark-eyed, made for love. And she talked of dreadful things which were going to happen because the moon looked screwy. She released herself and glanced out over the sea. I know I'm silly, but... Her voice froze and her slender body stiffened. Cliff, look! Darrell spun around, and as he stared, he felt a dryness seeping into his throat, choking him. Out of the winding sheet of fog, into the moonlight, crept a strange, strange craft. Her crumbling timbers blackened and rotted with incredible age. The corpse of a ship, she seemed, resurrected from the grave of the sea. Her prow thrust upward like a scimitar bent backward, hovering over the gaunt ruin of a cabin whose seaward sides were formed by port and starboard bows. From a shallow pit amidships jutted the broken arm of a mast, its splintered tip pointing toward the blindly watching moon. The stern, thickly covered with the moldering encrustations of age, 
curved inward above the strange high poop, beneath which lay another cabin, and along either side of her worm-eaten freeboard ran a row of apertures like oblong portholes. Out of these projected great oars, long, unwieldy, as somberly black as the rest of the ancient hulk. Now a sound drifted across the waters. The steady, rhythmic boom, boom, boom of a drum beating time for the rowers. Its hollow thud checked the heart, set it to throbbing in tempo with its own weary pulse. Ghostly fingers, dripping dread, crawled up Daryl's spine. Stiff-lipped, Vilma gasped. What? What is it? Cliff answered in a dry, husky voice, the words seeming to trip over an awkward tongue. It's... it's... it can't be, damn it. But it's a galley. A ship from the days of Alexander the Great. What's it doing here, now? Closer she came through the moon path, a frothing lip of brine curling away from her swelling prow. Closer, her course crossing that of the aerial, and the watchers saw her crew. They gasped, and the blood ebbed from their faces. Men of ancient Persia, clad in leather kirtles and rusted armor, and they were hideous. In the yellow moon glow, Cliff could see them clearly now. A lookout, standing motionless in the stem, the steersman on the poop deck, the drummer squatting beside the broken mast, the rowers in the pit, and all, all, were a bloodless white, the skin of their faces puffed and bloated and horribly wrinkled, like flesh that had been under water a long time. Dead men, men whose movements were stiffly wooden, as dead as their faces. But most horrible was the fact that they were there, that they moved at all. A queer mirage, isn't it? A hollow voice spoke suavely behind them. Vilma gasped at the sudden sound, and they whirled. A foot away stood the tall, lean figure of the Ariel's captain, Leon Corio. A queer smile twisted his thin lips. What's the idea, sneaking up on us? Darrell demanded angrily. He didn't like this man. Hadn't liked him from the moment he had approached Cliff to sell him the yacht. But Cliff had bought the craft because she was a bargain, and, in accordance with their agreement, he had hired Corio as captain. The tall man's smile remained fixed, and he bowed gravely. Sorry, sir. I always walk softly. A habit, I suppose. He gestured toward the galley. It looks quite lifelike, 
Don't you think so? Lifelike? Cliff spoke between his teeth as he again faced the black ship. It looks dead to me. The galley had almost reached them now, veering sharply to draw up beside the aerial. The drum quieted, and the oars trailed in the water, motionless except for the swaying imparted by the waves. A musty, age-old odor filtered through the air like a breath from a grave. The music and dancing had stopped. A fear-filled hush shrouded the yacht. Vilma drew Cliff's arm about her shoulder. He glanced back at the motionless captain. Do something, Corio, he rasped. Don't stand there like a dummy. Corio nodded with his same queer smile. His hand darted to an inside pocket, came out bearing a curious instrument, like four twisted cones of silver bound together with silver thongs. As he raised this to his mouth, his eyelids were slits, behind which burned the embers of his eyes. Out over the sea crept a single note, deep, hollow, laden with eerie minor wailings, a sound that summoned imperatively, yet a sound that repelled. It was a moan, hideous as the moan of a dying demon. It raked the heart with fear-tipped claws. It rose and fell and rose again, and as it died, it awakened the crew of the ancient galley to motion, sweeping them in a horde to the rail of the yacht. Cliff swung toward Corio in bursting fury, fury mingled with dread. His fist lashed out at that glittering silver instrument and the face behind it. But Corio avoided him like a wraith. Still smiling fixedly, the horn again at his lips. Cliff cursed and hurled himself through the air. One hand caught a bony shoulder. He felt fingers, like hooks, close on his own throat. He wrenched free, landing a stunning blow on Corio's face, saw him reel and crash to the deck. And then he heard Vilma scream. He whirled. She was struggling between two of the flabby-faced things from the galley. In an instant he was upon them, his fist thudding against icy flesh, burying itself in something horribly soft and yielding. Startled, Cliff swung a second blow, and an arm, tomb-cold and strong as the tentacle of an octopus, wrapped itself around him, a vice of thin-covered bone. A dead, drowned face peered over his shoulder, staring blankly. Other arms seized his legs, 
and though he struggled and writhed with the strength of a mounting fear, he was borne to the rail. Over they went, and dropped to the rotting deck of the galley. A numbness was creeping through him like a contagion, spreading from those crushing hands of ice. His struggles ceased. With eyes that turned stiffly in their sockets, he looked for Vilma, saw her raised high above the heads of two other pallid creatures, saw them climb over the rail. Then the blackness of a dank and musty cabin enveloped him, and he was dropped with jarring force. His captors bulked black against the moonlit doorway, treading soundlessly, and were gone. Cliff lay in rigid paralysis, every sense keenly alive, his mind striving to clutch a single spar of reason in this chaotic whirlpool of the incredible. This couldn't be. Soon he would awaken to laugh at his absurd nightmare. Yet it seemed horribly real. It was real. From the aerial boiled a fearful bedlam. Screams of terror, curses. Then other shadows loomed in the doorway, and Vilma, motionless and rigid, was dropped brutally beside him on the spongy floor. Furiously, Cliff struggled against the maddening restraint of paralysis. He couldn't lie here helpless. Vilma needed him. He'd, he'd have to do something. With an effort that studded his forehead with rounded drops of sweat and sent the blood throbbing through the distended veins of his neck, he sought to move. And, like a cord snapping, his invisible bonds fell from him. He was crouching over Vilma, rubbing her wrists, calling to her, when again he heard the silver horn of Corio. A low droning, utterly unlike the note that had awakened the galley's crew, it drifted languidly along a channel of endless sleep. It seeped through the eardrums, touching every nerve tip with resistless lassitude. Doggedly, Cliff fought against the sound, pressing his hands over his ears, gritting his teeth, holding his eyelids wide. Yet, he felt his muscles weaken, began to relax, knew dimly that his mind, sodden with drowsiness, was creeping toward the pits of slumber. And the vibrant drone ended. His head cleared rapidly, and he bent over Vilma. As he touched a limp arm, he knew she had passed from paralysis into a deep, quiet sleep. He shook her. It was useless. He listened, heard her steady breathing, and at that instant realized that the noises from the yacht had ceased. Rising, he strode toward the square of chalky moonlight. A foot away, he halted, 
fell back. He had heard a faint footfall, had seen an armor-clad figure climbing over the rail. With silent haste, he flung himself down beside Vilma. And there he lay while the crew of the galley carried his friends from the aerial, all slumped in that unnatural sleep, and stretched them out on the floor of the black cabin. Unmoving, he watched through narrow lids till all save Corio had been carried aboard, and the drowned things had gone back to their places in the rower's pits. Again, the hollow voice of the drum began throbbing through the silence, and the oars creaked a faint accompaniment. He could feel the galley cleaving the oily sea. On his feet, he peered through the doorway. The backs of the rowers rose and fell with stiff mechanical rhythm. Beyond the galley's stern came the yacht, slinking along like a thief only one dim light showing, her diesel engines purring almost soundlessly. He turned and bent over Vilma, still in thrall to that strange deep slumber. As he traced the delicate outlines of her lovely face, now so lifeless and pale, bitter wrath flared within him, wrath and hatred for Leon Corio. But as he thought of the ghastly, undead things out there in the galley pit, thought of this water-soaked anachronism which had no right to be afloat, his skin crisped with a sense of foreboding, a fear of what was yet to come. He must do something. Stepping over the still forms of his friends, he moved to the forward wall, where a beam of radiance crept fearfully through a gap between two boards. His hands touched the hull, and he jerked them away. Rotten, clammy, like a decayed corpse, partly frozen. Crouching, he peered through. Far ahead, a blotch of evil blackness squatted on the horizon. An island, crouching low, like a black beast ready to spring. Around it, the moonlight seemed to dim, as though it were striving to hide some nameless horror. Interminably, Cliff watched, while the shadowed mass drew closer, closer. They were headed for a towering wall of black basalt, and, as the galley neared it, Cliff saw that it bore striking resemblance to a gigantic human skull, its rounded surface broken by caves that the sea had carved into hollow eye sockets and an empty nasal cavity. The rock wall ended high above the water. Beneath it, lay a gaping chasm of pitchy darkness. And the galley, drum silenced, oars at rest, slid under the ledge into the mouth of the skull.
just before total blackness fell, Cliff sprang to Vilma's side and raised her in his arms. If he hoped to do anything, he must do it now. He groped his way to the starboard bow and moved one hand along the dank timbers, searching. He found what he sought, a wide gap at the edge of a board. Gently lowering Vilma to the floor, he gripped the slimy wood with both hands and thrust outward mightily. A wide strip of decayed timber burst free. He dropped it into the sea and attacked the next board. In moments, a wide, irregular opening yawned in the galley's hull. Leaning out, Cliff looked down. He could see nothing. Then, suddenly, a faint light appeared, and he heard the hum of the Ariel's motors as she entered the cave. The humming ceased instantly, but the faint light persisted. Now he could see the blackness of waters, a rock wall beyond. He drew back, and as he did so, he heard movements on deck. At any moment, the rowers might enter. He'd have to risk a drop into the water with Vilma. There was nothing else to do. If only she were conscious. He stooped and raised her, holding her firmly with one arm. Gripping the hull with the other, he climbed through the opening, inhaled deeply, and dropped. A heart-stopping plunge, and cold water closed over them. Down, down. Then they shot upward, reached the surface, and even as Cliff gulped a single gasping breath, something struck his skull a blinding, stunning blow. The oars. With rapidly numbing arms and legs, Cliff kicked and flailed the water, striving for land. Dimly he knew he no longer held Vilma. Dimly he visioned her as were those ghastly undead. Then his body scraped on something hard, and a blackness that was not physical blotted out consciousness. End of Part 1